Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'll try not to take up too much of your time before we get into the podcast today. Thank you again to all of the sponsors of the podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can head over head over to podbean.com. You can download their app or go over to their website. Um, you can donate to support the podcast, which will give you access to patron-only episodes. Currently, the patron-only episodes that are up there, I discuss a paper on inter-rater reliability of the modified Oxford scale on the paratron. I've given my conference talk on physiotherapy management of stress urinary incontinence that I did last year for a medical conference. I discuss a paper on pelvic floor safe exercises and intra-abdominal pressure. I started this year discussing the mistakes that I have learned from and that I am still learning from. And I did a little one on double unders, which is a form of skipping in CrossFit. So you can head on over, you can become a patron, have access to those. I'm hoping to put out more of them each month in order to say thank you to those who support. If you don't um, support through Podbean, I'm still excited that everybody listens and I hope that everyone is enjoying them. Today we are talking about functional constipation. Now I've got Alison Bryant who is an amazing physiotherapist here in Brisbane working in the public and private sectors. Um, She does work a lot with colorectal patients and we have Dr. Chris Gillespie who again he's a colorectal surgeon he works in the private and the public system here in Brisbane and you can catch both of them at the Brisbane Functional Colorectal Conference which is coming up in March 2019 catch the details on the podcast so I hope everybody enjoys today there was a really strange scratching noise um, that happens throughout the podcast that isn't on my end and uh, as much as I have some sort of tech knowledge, I couldn't manage to find where it was coming from and separate it and take it out. So I'm sorry if I've just now brought your attention to it and it may bug you as it did bug me. I also apologize because um, I'm a little bit groggy at the start. I fell asleep putting my kids to bed um, and was waking up to all these phone calls because I was kind of missing the start of um, our podcast that we were supposed to be recording. (laughs) Whoopsies. Uh, Such is the life of a working and studying mom. Um, Okay, enough about me. I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Thanks both of you for agreeing to do this. Um, I thought it'd be a great way to talk about the conference coming up too that I yeah. can't, I can't yeah. come to. Yeah. I'm so sad, but um, yeah. yes. Okay. So I don't know how people can afford to go to conferences like all year. There's so There's many of them. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And I went to my first medical conference last year that um, that you were at as well Chris yeah. for a little bit and I thought wow yeah. this is why people come to conferences because it is not <laughs> it's not just about the education 
Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. We've got um, about 120 registrants so far and almost no surgeons from Brisbane, So, um, which is good because that they will register, they're just slack because, you know, they've all said they've come, they'll come. So um, physiotherapists are by far our biggest audience so far, but I'd say we're going to have well in excess of 150 which is a lot more than we wanted. So wow. we is were aiming. How many were you hoping for? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's going to be. It's actually going to be, like, it's gone from us being really worried about, you know, how it was going to go at all to um, to now. It's like, how are we going to actually cope with this many people? Type things. So different kind of problems. So it's looking. It's looking good. It's um, been a, a journey. I'll tell you that. So it's, what if you get a lot of local people in the last few weeks? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, there'll be, you know, a lot of surgeons will register probably with a days to go. They, they're just, they're the most useless group ever. So um, we'll see. They've got more money than us, Laurie, so. Um, what is it? It's called the Australian Functional, Brisbane. no, well, yeah, which, what's it called again? Functional Colorectal Conference. All right. So what, what made you want to do this? Um, no one's doing it. Um, there's a there's a big there's a really um, um, poor level of, of teaching amongst general surgeons even even within colorectal specific training there's not there's not sort of a um, every conference that we have is about cancer or about diverticulitis or about um, bigger sexier things with um, functional stuff being a bit of a side thing. And um, it's done pretty badly. It, it needs, um, it needs, um, you know, it's a really multidisciplinary um, issue, and um, and it's just not tackled well by the colorectal community. So we just thought, bugger it, we're just going to set up this conference. And um, once you set it up, you know, people, everyone's like, we've had, I've had two since we set up, two surgeons ringing me saying, oh, you know, we, they're begging me to do talks. <laughs> so we've had to sort of add them in, and so. Once it's set up, everyone's like, oh, yeah, we, this is really good. So, um, um, you know. We'll they were up. coming and they wanted to be added to the program. Yeah, they want to do talks. They're local oh, guys. Wow. And, you know, in the UK and in Europe, um, the, the, this is well-established, All lots of functional colorectal stuff. But in Australia, there's, there's very little um, in Australasia. So we wanted to make a sort of a high-end, um, but also not, not just, you know, another conference about, whether to use you know synthetic or biological mesh, which operation would you do? But to actually do it properly and look at the whole thing. So um, yeah. anyway, we'll, 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 it's all you know it, until we, until it happens. It's all talk. So, you just um, used oh. sorry, but you used the word sexy in order to describe a colorectal conference. <laughs> I mean, it worked, yeah. but wow. <laughs> yeah. uh, Is your end game to get like a group? together like a national or Australian New Zealand group we talked a lot about that Andrea and I Um, like the biggest point about groups is there's no point in creating a group unless it achieves something and so um, what probably our end game really is to engender interest particularly amongst fellows trainees junior consultants in how to actually tackle colorectal pelvic floor issues properly um, and because we think it's really badly done, and there's too much of a surgical focus, and um, so it's really to engender interest and try to spark um, spark 
uh, an interest in, in the field. And in fact, it's really good that we've got a lot of physios there because uh, and that a lot of the talks are coming from physios because I think it'll it'll bring the two groups together, which is what we want to do as well. Um, and just to try to engender research in Australia and New Zealand on the topic as well. Um, so yeah, we, we've talked about one of the Andrew and I are giving a talk on a pelvic floor interest group, but you got to be careful creating a group. It's all very well to be a member of something, but if it doesn't actually do anything, it doesn't mm. achieve anything. Yeah. So. Mm. So what yeah. kind of things are physiotherapists covering in this conference? Yeah. So Alison is <laughs> one of our star speakers um so she so basically the things that that so of interest i guess are um dyssynergic defecation or poor defecatory techniques and the optimization of technique which is a lot of what physiotherapists do um amongst surgeons is poorly understood and in fact many surgeons even experienced surgeons deny that there is such an entity as dyssynergic defecation so allison is going to do a talk on that uh, what is biofeedback? We all talk about it, but many most students wouldn't have a clue what it is. Um, and so a bit of a talk on that. Uh, Taryn Hallam is also going to talk about sexual abuse. And I'm always shocked at the amount of sexual abuse that I uncover mm. in um, when, I, when when talking to patients. And, um, and I, in fact, I learned how to uncover that history from a conference I went to where Taryn did a talk. So yeah. Taryn's going to do that talk. So I think that'll benefit everyone. Um, and then we've got sessions that Alice, Alison and Taryn are actually running a session on um, biofeedback and um, some physiotherapy techniques that everyone can attend. And, and that's then we're a practical doing a session? Practical session, yeah. Oh, and we've nice. got Taryn, so people can get taught on how to do retrograde irrigation. Um, we're, and then, so, so it's really, we're trying to make it a bit of a left field conference that's not just your stock standard boring conference, it's just got something new and a bit different and questioning things that we see all the time but don't talk about much. That, that's what we're trying to achieve, but we'll see, you know, uh, when it all happens. So it's not just all about constipation? No, 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 the conference is about fecal incontinence and defecatory dysfunction, basically. Um, so the both the both of them and then the, you know we're talking about vaginal delivery again that old chestnut opening that can of worms vaginal delivery versus cesarean section is vaginal delivery really you know what's fascinating is that gynecologists still argue over whether vaginal delivery even causes pelvic floor problems you know which which i find amazing but um you know the evidence is actually really difficult to weed out and they've always got a got some evidence to say that what you're saying is wrong um so um, there's a bit about that. Any um, debates with like colorectal versus gynecology? Oh, yeah. Ah. Well, there's debates like not so much. I think colorectal versus gynecology. There's always the talk. We are we are actually doing Chris Mars doing a talk on colorectal versus um, gynecological repair of um, rectus seal. Nice. Um, which you know is always brought up in every conference. Um, so that still hasn't been um, that discussion hasn't been um, rectified, really. It's still rel- It's still a good discussion, I think. Um, yeah. It's still a good discussion, and people get a lot out of it. Um, uh, I, I don't like. I don't like thinking of it as a competition between two groups of who's better. It's more, you know, what what um, what procedure or approach is best for which particular patient. Yeah. Mm. We've got a really interesting, our first opening debate is whether anorectal physiology is of any use. 
um, which you know a lot of people argue that the educated finger is as good, and which I I completely understand that argument, and I often think that myself, to be honest. So, um, so the educated finger versus formal anorectal physiology testing, we've got a debate on synthetic mesh versus non-synthetic mesh. So, the, I think the the debate oh, wow. is synthetic mesh should be used in the pelvis. Uh, there's a for and against. Um, so that'll be interesting. Um, so yeah, there's lots, um, lots in it. We'll see how it all pans out. We've got like some big names, like Caroline Vasey is probably arguably the world authority on fecal incontinence, and she's one of our main speakers. So there's heaps. Oh, yeah. oh my God! Now I'm like, okay, well maybe I don't need to present this year, and I can just <laughs> change my mind and come to that instead because it sounds so good. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, is there a cap of how many people can register? No. No. And is there um, any kind of online registration? You know, for people who are international yeah. and can't make it, can they? Is there an online it's attendee? Yeah, it's it's only online. No, no. But sorry, is in can people um, register online yeah. and attend online and like? Okay. We don't. Ha- it's a good point, actually. You're not the first. Someone else asked me that today. We don't have that currently. Okay. No. Um, I don't think we have the technology to do it. Not yet. Yeah. All right. They have to come to Brisbane if they want to get there. And it's on yep. March. When is that? 15, 16. March 15th, 16th. So is that St. Patrick's Day? Just around there? I'm assuming that there's like a function. There always seems to be some sort of function. Is there a dinner? There's a dinner on the Friday night. Um, St. Patrick's Day might be the Saturday, would it? That's a good point. I can't remember. Look, we used to celebrate it in Canada all the time, and then I came here, and nobody drinks green beer here. I'm like, okay, well, that's all right. So you might have to incorporate that. Well, um, that oh yeah, that sounds excellent. So today I thought that we could talk about constipation, um, it, which, I must, like you said, I, I think that it's going to be – covered you're going to be covering portions of that within the conference um allison when we talked about constipation a long time ago i loved how you started because you said you know when we kind of discuss what is constipation everybody has a different definition of what it could be so today we're talking about functional constipation with functional kind of in the bunny years so what what is that what are we what are we saying what is constipation is it just that people just can't poo if only things were always that simple. But um, we mostly use the Rome 3 diagnostic criteria when we're talking about um, these things. And, and this comes under the functional bowel disorders. So C3 category. Oh, hold on. Not too many people who walk, walk ticking some of these boxes. So to come under the... Um, Hold on, I'm going to interrupt you just for a second. Um, did um, did Alison just go out on you, Chris, or was that me? No, uh, no, I got all that. You got, oh, man, it just went out on me. Sorry. <laughs> What's constipation? Okay, <laughs> okay so, uh, so we generally use the Rome 3 diagnostic criteria and functional constipation comes under the functional bowel disorders. So most patients walking into a um, colorectal unit will... Um, tick a lot of these boxes. So officially, patients need to have two or more of the following um, to be diagnosed with functional constipation. 
So on more than 25% of occasions of defecation, do they have straining, lumpy or hard stools, a sensation of incomplete emptying, splinting or manual manoeuvres to empty, or a sensation of blockage or obstruction? Or the other one is, are they emptying less than three times per week? Now, if they have two things within those um, categories and they have to rarely have loose stools unless it's related to laxative use and not have not reached the threshold for diagnosis of IBS. So if all of that happens and they've had those symptoms for the last three months with symptoms onset more than six months, then <laughs> you can say that they have functional constipation. All right. So do you find... So, so Alice, people it's about how often they go or how hard yeah. the stool is or how difficult it is to get out, but all of those and more are covered under the official definition. So, Chris, do you find... So you're a colorectal surgeon um, and Alison being a physio, I've always wondered... Alison, do you find you have more referrals from Chris or do people come to you with constipation first? Like do they seem to come to physio first or they end up with Chris and then Chris sends them to you? Um, it's probably um, just the where we are in the colorectal unit then mm. most of the patients are referred from Chris and Andrea yeah. um, and, and in the unit. So in, in that situation almost all of them come from um, the surgeons yeah. or from gastro but um, and privately um, privately like most of the referrals still come from the specialists um, just trying to think about just the colorectal patients now most of them do come from the specialists but then um, you pick them up through other places and and sometimes it's the other way where um, I'm sending them on yeah, I think that yeah that varies very much where just where you are. That's just a, a, a dependent on um, the referral practices uh, where you are, and also the knowledge of various doctors. There's many doctors who um, GPs who would treat constipation and feel that that there's no you know there's nothing particularly that can be done. There's no surgical intervention. Why would you send someone with constipation to a surgeon? Um, in, in, in Brisbane where we are we're fairly lucky because we have an established unit and so there is a bit more awareness that um, that we have a unit which specifically focuses on on the treatment of these disorders but I, I would argue that in many parts of Australia these patients may not be referred at all um, would simply um, be told that they need laxatives and, and we all know that many patients by the time they do come to us they've they've been on the merry-go-round um, they've seen a number of um, number of GPs, number of different kinds of doctors, they've almost always had a colonoscopy. Um, in fact, I'd say the specialist that probably has most referrals for these problems would actually be a gastroenterologist. Um, and many would have seen a number of allied health uh, practitioners and often alternative practitioners as well and um, come to you quite frustrated um, having not really got much better. Um, you'll notice from the Rome 3 criteria that um, the majority of symptoms are, are actually those of obstructed defecation um, and um, a significant proportion of these patients have biomechanical disturbance of their evacuatory mechanism in my experience. In fact, I would argue that the majority of them have biomechanical disturbance. 
and laxatives may not be may not necessarily completely fix their problem. And many of them will be very frustrated telling you that doctors have told them they just need more and more doses of laxatives, but it just doesn't fix the problem and they still feel that they have symptoms of constipation or defecatory dysfunction. So when you say obstructed... No, no, go ahead. Sorry. Um, Just what Chris mentioned there that like a lot of the patients in the unit will have already had a colonoscopy and that's a luxury when they turn up at our door for physio because you're like, right, I know that they've been thoroughly investigated. But when they do turn up from a GP or having self-referred or talked to their friend who had some treatment and so think, oh, I might go there as well, then I would say that for the colorectal patients, I would have a lower threshold for referring them to the specialist than I would mm. for maybe some of the other pelvic floor patients. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. particularly the red flags that you want to be looking for are a change in bowel habit, like a sudden or acute change in bowel habit, weight loss, rectal bleeding, abdominal pain, um, and excessive straining. So with those red flags, you know, you would want them seen pretty quickly and um, most of the doctors would have them scoped pretty quickly. And, And then you might feel a bit more confident going on with what you're doing, but yeah, yeah, and no, I would agree with that because the the uh, there's a the big difference between patients who present with uh, middle compartment or vaginal symptoms and posterior compartment or anorectal symptoms is that it's it's quite it's much less common for someone presenting with a bulge in their vagina or dyspareunia to have a um, a serious pathology um, causing or, or a malignant pathology causing that problem. The patients who present with anorectal symptoms, the thing is that the anorectum is at the end of a very long GI tract, and there's um, there's a lot of other pathologies which may manifest as um, functional GI symptoms, number one. Number two, uh, luminal disorders, in particular colorectal cancer, are, are actually quite common. It's mm. the um, uh, second cause of um, cancer-related, second most common cause of cancer-related death within Australia and um, men have a 1 in 10 chance of developing colorectal cancer in their life and females have a 1 in 13 chance. So, so you'd, you know, even if you picked 100 people off the street um, and colonoscoped them all, one of them might have colorectal cancer. Mm. So um, even if it may not be the cause of their presenting complaints, colorectal neoplasia is very common. And so I do agree with Alison. And many of the patients, the thing is many patients, the majority of patients who have chronic constipation have abdominal pain. And, and in fact, a small proportion of them will present as with abdominal pain as their predominant symptom, yeah. which actually is related to poor rectal evacuation. So many of those patients do have some some symptoms which on their own accord would, would warrant a luminal investigation. So we do have a low threshold to perform endoscopic investigation for our patients. But having said that, our, our pickup of cancer is actually relatively low. So we've got a pickup rate of about 1%, which is which is actually not much higher than the um, than the um, population rate for under for patients undergoing colonoscopy within Australia. So, if somebody comes to your office and they are complaining of um, constipation and they haven't seen a physio yet, what are the kind of things that you you said you're trying to rule out cancer? What investigations, Chris, do you do when you're trying to work out whether or not they need conservative versus surgical management? Or what's going so on? So in my yeah, in in my hands, um, someone 
someone presenting with um, constipation or defecatory dysfunction is always managed conservatively in the first instance. The only real patients who would warrant upfront surgical management would be, would be someone with a frank external full thickness rectal prolapse. Um, that patient is going to require surgery. Everyone else, which is the vast majority, we always start with conservative treatment to to surgery in all pelvic floor disorders um, should be reserved for those patients who have undergone a, a period of conservative treatment um, and, and surgery needs to be carefully discussed and cautiously discussed with patients um, um, with regard to risks, chance of success, um, chance of no improvement with surgery, etc. So, um, so I, we, we tend to involve pelvic floor physiotherapists on, on virtually everyone, pretty much anyone coming to me with uh, defecatory dysfunction because pelvic floor physiotherapists offer a very holistic um, uh, approach to um, improving defecation. Not only do they um, are they helpful in uh, optimizing stool, they'll modify fiber intake, modify um, laxative doses, different kinds of laxatives, but they'll also talk about the patient's lifestyle, how they, when they go to the toilet, how they go to the toilet, positioning going to the toilet, muscular coordination, um, looking at the abdomen and pelvis as a cylinder, and um, uh, understanding that abdominal and diaphragmatic muscles are all related to pelvic floor function. And so it's a really holistic approach which, um, um, which often results in improvement, and even in patients with pelvic organ prolapse, to a degree, there is there are some sim- there are symptom improvements with um, pelvic floor physiotherapy, as was shown in the Poppy trial. Um, so, um, so we would involve a physiotherapy a physiotherapist in everyone, and, and also, and we also have a low threshold for involving dietitians. And um, we recently conducted a study at QB2 where we looked at our patients who came in with functional constipation and um, underwent dietetic input and 25% of them had complete resolution of their symptoms with dietetic input alone. So, you know, that's wow. your subset of patients who, who, who really just have a poor diet and their, their main problem is probably poor stool consistency and with modification of the stool consistency, their evacuatory mechanism works normally and, and they get better. So. Um, these are straightforward, you know, it's, it's, there's no risk in involving a physiotherapist or dietitian in the treatment of your patients. So, um, so it should, they should be involved in, in everyone's treatment. So if they haven't had any conservative management before you run any of the anorectal physiology or anything like that, you would send them on to see the physio and then the physio would assess them in treatment and then decide whether or not they need to send them back to you. The current, the current... Uh, more or less, that's that's right. That's how we work. The, the system at, at QE2 is that the um, the patients are actually taken off the waiting list before we see them and are treated by both dietitian and physiotherapist. We do, even if the patient has improved, we do still see the patient for an assessment. That's mainly because the referral has been named to us and, and also, um, you know, just to ensure that the patient doesn't require some endoscopic investigation or something else perhaps. But... Um, but um, yeah, for a, for a reasonable percentage of patients, they, they might come to us already fixed by um, the conservative treatment that physiotherapists and dietitians have, have started. Of course they would. So Allison, if somebody comes to you, whether or not they were referred from a colorectal surgeon or gastroenterologist, which 
I'd like to get into the difference between the two in just a minute. <laughs> um, so what, as a physio, what, it, what do you do? Like, what are you doing for an assessment in order to determine what's going on and what course of action needs to be, in a nutshell? Yeah. Um, I think that the important thing that no matter what pelvic floor dysfunction someone's turning up with, that they have to be assessed in all areas. So no matter what they're turning up for, you need to consider the urinary function, what's happening um, pain-wise, what's happening with the bowel, obviously. And the hard one that can be difficult for some people to ask about is um, sexual function. So I just think if you um, approach that question confidently but gently, most people are quite happy to have been asked the questions and um, very often you're the first person that they'll um, disclose different things to. But don't necessarily um, assume things about your patients because I have some actual real world patients that give examples of where you might not be getting the answers that you're expecting. Like a little 84 year old lady who when asked if she was sexually active said, I'm 84 love, I'm not dead. <laughs> so. Don't assume just because someone's old that they're not sexually active. Um, another example I have was a lady who from memory would have been in her mid-30s and I was about to ask her if she was sexually active when she just told me that her partner was actually long-term incarcerated and wouldn't be out for some time. And I said, oh, well, I was just about to ask you if you were sexually active. And she went very quiet and then she said, uh, well, I'm actually a sex worker. Yeah, all right. So just, you know, making those assumptions and definitely um, um, all, all the time, but certainly recently I've had quite a few mature women who have never been sexually active. And so just being careful about how you ask those questions. Um, I usually say, are you sexually active? And if they say no, I usually follow up with, have you ever been? And um, often just allowing them to have that opportunity to say no is worth all the times that someone goes, ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> like, because I'm often asking that question before I've actually got to the point of have you had children? And I think it's better to ask it that way around, but everyone has their own hmm. um, kind of way of approaching these things, I think. But are you, are you asking that question because it's helping you determine what might be going on or because you're trying to gain what function is being disrupted by the issue that they're having or both? Yeah, I mean, if they're, uh, you want to know if they're, having, um, if they're having pain, you want to know if that's the case. It might give you an indication as to how receptive they might be to doing an objective exam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's so many components to it that um, you might want to consider as you approach further in the assessment. But as far as the colorectal um, assessment goes and the subjective part, I generally tend to just follow a fairly chronological order about um, their day. Like up front, I'll often ask, how often are you going and what are you passing using the Bristol chart, which, you know, is not perfect, but it's the best we have. But then I'll often go chronologically, like when you get the urge, where do you feel it? Is that rectal or is it more abdominal, cramping? And then what happens on the way to the toilet? Do you make it there? How do you sit on the toilet? What do you do during defecation? What happens afterwards? Is wiping easy? Like it's just 
it seems to me to be a fairly um, sensible thing to do to just follow through on that whole process. Yeah. And then, of course, you've still got to um, ask them about, are you straining? Do you have that feeling of incomplete emptying, which is just so distressing to some people? And then separating out um, different types of fecal incontinence, but we're not talking about that today. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, because it's, it's quite different whether someone's not making it to the toilet or if they're just passively losing something or if it's happening in that time soon after emptying. Yep. And then are you doing an objective exam as well? Yeah, and I think it's important for people to realise that not every person will consent to an, an internal rectal exam but you can still get a lot of information from doing um, an external exam. So even just having a look, um, I always teach them that brace and bulge um, exercise first. And um, I think it's a really good place for people to start if they're just seeing some colorectal patients because um, often I'll see them in left side lying first and then um, you can see what a good, what, Obviously, you're observing and looking what the anus is like, are there any skin tears, etc. But then, can they do a good um, anal squeeze? And if you get them then to do that brace and bulge procedure, you will see the opposite happening. So from their resting position, they will relax and open if they're doing it properly. And so I just say to them before I've even um, gone in, I will say, what happens up there affects what happens down here and you're doing that beautifully. And I want to feel what happens on your muscle while you do that in a minute. And they can just make that connection. But for some patients who've already said, no, we're just looking, go, yeah, like you're on the right track. I can't tell completely, but um, yeah, at least you get some idea. Do you do a vaginal exam as well or do you, like if you're going to do any kind of internal examination of pelvic floor muscles, do you do both vaginal and rectal or do you just choose one or the other or? I rarely do both on the same time because, um, I mean, patients will often say that I take a bit longer than the doctor does because I'm actually getting them to do a few different things at the time. What happens to your muscle when you do this, when you do that, when you do... And they've kind of had enough by the end. Mm. Um, but to be fair, these days I actually prefer feeling the pelvic floor rectally. Mm. I think that you get a really good sense of the direction and the strength of what the muscles are doing. Um, so usually it would just be rectal. If they've turned up for a colorectal problem and occasionally someone comes and, and from the doctor referring you think I know where this is going and they turn up and they go well actually my main problem is something else so then you go a different direction of course. Yeah and they may possibly have already been poked and prodded by Chris as well. <laughs> oh if yeah, well um yeah, it just depends. In the public system, you know, if there may ha or may not have been a waiting list. So things can happen at different times. It's not necessarily a linear journey that everyone's yeah. on the same. Yeah. I'm come I always come from a private practice because I've never worked in the hospital, so I never know how it works. Um don't, we don't. <laughs> I, I've got a delay in my Skype, so sorry if it's uh 
kind of choppy. Um, now, Chris, you were talking about <laughs> obstructed defecation. So can you explain a little bit about what that is and the difference between a couple of them? So I defined obstructed defecation as um, uh, as a, a patient um, who is not able to satisfactorily empty their rectum. And so the the interestingly the the four key symptoms that I asked for happen to be the exact symptoms, um, exact first four symptoms in the Rome three criteria for functional constipation. So essentially, I ask four questions, the same every time. Um, do you strain excessively more than a quarter of the time? Um, do you feel blocked? Um, do you feel that you have not completely emptied your rectum? And I find that's usually the key question. And patients really latch on to that because, in fact, many of them finally feel that you get them when you say um, that you've, you, you, you've gone to the toilet but you feel there's still something left. And then another question you can add on to that is the, the symptom of what we call encore defecation. So the patient then having to return to the toilet, say half an hour later, to complete the job because they weren't able to fully empty their rectum. The final symptom is um, is digitation. So a patient needing to use their finger somewhere to assist with defecation, and that, that can be rectal digitation. It can be vaginal digitation where the patient pushes on, on the posterior vaginal wall to assist with defecation, and that's usually a pretty specific symptom for, a, for someone who is likely to benefit from a rectocele repair. Some patients even um, just say, look, I just feel I need to push on the side of my anus perineal digitation and those patients may well have a lateral rectocele some patients even say they abdominally digitate so they push on their tummy to help them go to the toilet as well but essentially it, it means there's some biomechanical disturbance to the eva the evacuatory mechanism that that patient has in their rectum it's very important as Alison indicated before to to ask um, a complete um, pelvic floor history and many patients with obstructed defecation will also have a degree of fecal leakage. And um, many of them may have what we call typical post-defecatory soiling, where they'll, where they'll say, I go to the toilet and I clean myself and I clean myself and I clean myself and I'm sure I'm clean, but then half an hour later, I'm dirty again. And there's usually a little bit of mucus which leaks out into their underwear and they find that very distressing and it may cause itch or excoriation or other symptoms. And so there's often... Uh, often coexisting passive fecal leakage and patients will often say to you, you know, no one can understand how I'm constipated by also, but I also leak. But actually, a significant percentage of patients, probably half of all the patients with obstructive defecation also have a degree of leakage because of the bio biomechanical disturbance because the, the, the functions involved with, with bladder function and anorectal function involve both the ability to effectively open the anus and rectum and bladder and urethra separately and to close both of them and disturbance relating to supports in the pelvis around perirectal supports um, uh, will, will have an effect both on their ability to open but also their ability to close. So it's important to ask about symptoms of leakage and then the patient may also occasionally say, look, sometimes then other times, occasionally I have to rush to the toilet and I don't make it. Um, and then also obviously ask about vaginal symptoms, ask about sexual function, as Alison said, and ask, ask about bladder symptoms and then also ask about pain, in particular low back pain, which, um, which may also be part of the problem, and abdominal pain, which is, as we said before, is actually very common. In fact, sometimes is the predominant symptom in patients with defecatory dysfunction. So you really need to take a full history. In, in, my, in my experience, then, the, um, 
the important thing is to try to work out what's, what, what's caused this disturbance. And so it's very important to then talk about childhood experiences. So what did the patient have problems with their bowel function as a child? Uh, and if they had problems with bowel function as a child, how early did that did that problem go back to? If they had problems as a neonate, then they may be one of that rare group of patients who is actually presenting with adult onset Hirschsprung's disease. So often the patient's mother will be able to tell you that the patient had problems around birth or delayed passage of meconium or hospitalizations in their first year of life. But the, the, the bigger group of patients will, will say they've had problems ever since primary school. They remember going to see the doctor as a child. They remember being constipated. They remember their mother giving them enemas or laxatives as a child. So that patient has had straining and probably poor rectal evacuation probably for most of their life when by the time they've seen you. And it's likely that that patient, that problem started in their childhood, perhaps, and, and physiotherapists know a lot more about this than we do, but perhaps they perhaps they, um, they they were not able to learn how to effectively evacuate their rectum in the first place. Well, maybe they started off effectively evacuating, but then some traumatic event or sexual abuse, which is important to ask about, occurred, and that upset uh, the finely tuned reflex of, of defecation and then the next question to ask is, uh, of course, obstetric trauma. And so um, for females, um, you know, uh, um, asking about vaginal deliveries and trying to elicit if it was very traumatic can sometimes be useful. What Was forceps involved or bontus? Was it a big baby? Uh, was it very painful? Some patients will say, oh, you know, the doctor said it was fine, but I couldn't sit down for six weeks. Well, it probably was quite traumatic then just based on the history uh, some patients will be able to say to you they had a specific tear, it was a grade 3B tear and it was repaired. And obviously that, that, that just gives you a clue as to the degree of trauma that was involved with them. And, and that, that's really, I would say the majority of, of patients are females who were fine until they had babies and then sustained obstetric trauma and have subsequently developed a problem related to that. And the final group is, um, is pelvic pelvic uh, surgery. So patients who have undergone some pelvic surgery, they say they were fine until they had pelvic surgery and in particular hysterectomy. And they really, these yeah. patients are quite convinced that it's come on after hysterectomy. Um, obviously, we're seeing the, um, the numerator, not the denominator. And so um, there, there may well be many patients who undergo hysterectomy who don't develop any defecatory yeah. dysfunction, but certainly it's an observation. And, and it does make sense because the um, the rectum and uh, vagina and periservical ring and bladder are all um, are all um, joined together and, and, and fused, and there's important elastic tissue between them, vital for function. And um, when a particularly when a radical hysterectomy is performed, um, the some of that important supportive tissue is divided by necessity to perform hysterectomy. And thereby, it's not inconceivable that that would um, would cause um, uh, some defecatory difficulties or problems. Just this, just like if I perform an, an abdominoperineal resection for rectal cancer and I remove someone's rectum, uh, it would not be uncommon for that patient to then complain of bladder symptoms. I didn't go near their bladder, I didn't touch their bladder, but they develop bladder symptoms and I would take responsibility for that because I've operated within that patient's pelvis and I've upset the fine balance that um, that was there that maintains uh, muscles' ability to um, to open and close uh, the bladder. So, um, uh, so conceivably, it does make sense. The, the literature on this topic, I don't, 
there, there's been a number of studies which which um, either report possibly some effects uh, or no effects of hysterectomy on anorectal function, but none of these studies have have been specifically designed prospectively to um, to only evaluate anorectal function in patients undergoing hysterectomy. Uh, different kinds of hysterectomy have been lumped together, and um, uh, I think it's been difficult to to draw conclusions. Um, hysterectomy, of course, is not the only cause of anorectal dysfunction. So um, it, it, the muddy, the, the waters are very much muddied in these studies, and it's difficult to um, to really get accurate answers. But um, uh, I think it's certainly an observation, and um, we'd like to look into this a little bit further. In terms of more more uh, medical causes, to be honest. We occasionally do find um, more more medical causes or endocrine causes or neurological causes, but but they're 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 relatively uncommon. I recently had a lady who um, who who I was treating for obstructive defecation, which really sounded just like straightforward obstructive defecation related to obstetric trauma, and um, and she did have um, findings of prolapse, and everything was beginning to add up. But actually, it turned out she had a uh, meningioma in her lumbar spine, oh, and wow. uh, that explained her bladder and bowel symptoms, and um, and why nothing we did seemed to work. So it's important to also just keep a bit of an open mind. Um, so neurological causes, drug-related causes, taking a medical history, and and I always send off sort of a panel of blood tests, full blood count, electrolytes, liver function, thyroid function test. Um, uh, calcium, magnesium, phosphate, just to check that you're not missing something a little bit more medical uh, as in, in terms of the cause of, of their symptoms. So th those, th in terms of history, that, that, that's sort of my my approach. And, and then obviously screening for um, colorectal neoplasia, which you wouldn't want to miss, especially as a colorectal surgeon. So, yeah. so then, Alison, coming back to you, so... When you're seeing patients and you're you've done the subjective exam and you're doing the objective exam, what are you looking for with regards to pelvic floor muscles? And are you using any tools in order to assess pelvic floor muscles? Like, how do they come into affecting somebody not being able to poo? Um, just mostly the finger, I think, that um, for the rectal assessment. But um, you know, we use a lot of um, pictures and diagrams to kind of show people the, where the um, pelvic floor kinks around the lower part of the rectum just above the anal sphincter and show them that you can pull that muscle on when you want to tighten it but when you go to the toilet you should relax it back and um, after assessing them you can come back to that and say well um, actually you do release well but there is a bit of prolapse there or actually yours releases a little bit but not much or your muscle actually pulls on further when you go to um, strain down. So um, I think we have to be careful in the assessment with what words that we use. I usually say push down like you would do when you're trying to empty your bowel because just saying strain down can mean different things to different people and I want it to be as now generally speaking I think if you put your finger in someone's bottom and get them to push down you can expect a little bit of 
anxiety and nervousness that might cause those muscles to hold on anyway. And I think that that's why there's a bit of a feeling out there amongst some doctors that, well, this is rubbish because, you know, that's going to happen to anyone. But I, I do take longer in that assessment and getting them to do different manoeuvres, using the abdomen, brace and bulge, what, whatever you want to kind of call it, and see what technique actually causes that person to release that muscle the best. They feel like they're relaxed. They feel like they're just um, not doing anything unusual. So what other thing that's removed away from the pelvic floor that we can do is going to be the best at getting the pelvic floor to release? And this is why we're lucky that we do have the abdominal capsule where the, the diaphragm, the deep abdominals and the deep spinal muscles all work with the pelvic floor. So let's remove that away and work out what works best for them. It's going to be different for each person. And now let's take that up into the defecation position and reproduce that as much as we can here. And then you can um, use other tools like biofeedback to see is that actually happening. So mostly I use um, Surface EMG so that that it's just a little handheld device and the patients can quickly see that from a resting position they can pull on their pelvic floor and all oh, the lights light up and the numbers go up. Okay, come back to rest. Now actually what we're meant to be working on is doing those strategies and getting those muscles going the other way because to go to the toilet you need to relax and open. So for someone who's actually um, activating their pelvic floor when they go um, um, when they're pushing down, I would be happy just for a stable reading on the EMG when they're doing it correctly. That's a good place to start. But ideally, you want to be aiming for opening. And I think that when the patient can actually tune in and feel that sensation that when I do this, when I have the need to go, I go to the toilet and I do this action, I can feel that opening, you know, if they're female, I can feel the vagina and anus open. When they can feel that is often when things really start to um, kick in. So if they're only doing that every second day or once a day, that's not enough for motor training. So I'll say to them, of course I want you doing this when you go to empty your bowel, but after every time you do a wee, can you take 30 seconds and just practice that strategy? and think I'm, I'm in a good position, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm breathing, talk to yourself, and then go, yep, do it again, okay, and off you go. So at least you're getting several times a day that you're actually getting those pathways working and trying to instill that modal learning. Yeah, and so Chris, you said earlier that there's um, the a very high percentage of people who have issues when they see a physiotherapy um, they're you know they tend to get better by working on their positioning and diet even though that's not physio but sometimes part of it can come into physio and all the other tools and things that physios do and have a look at but when say you know at one point Alison do you decide this isn't enough this isn't working I think I need to send them back to Chris and then Chris what would you do from there even though there's so many causes and reasons well I think um, um, sorry um, so like there's different not everyone is going to respond to the same thing so not everyone likes looking at the EMG some people feel better with the pressure because oftentimes we're 
doing this with an empty rectum and it's not mm. very functional. So um, some, not for every patient, but for some patients, I will use the rectal balloons and get an idea of um, where, what their rectal sensations like. And um, you can just blow up that balloon in the rectum enough to give them that sensation. It's just an artificial stool. And then they can use that using all of the techniques and often giving them that bit of distension on the rectum just um, helps things come in a little bit more. So use whatever um, techniques that you can. But just on that, I think that we need to be careful as a profession using things like the rectal balloons because there's a lot of discussion in our profession at the moment around the care that we need to take using um, fitting and managing pessaries for pelvic organ prolapse. And I think we need a similar level of caution with the rectal balloons. Um, you Which is why you're going to do, do a separate podcast episode on that for me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, you know, you, I wouldn't do it without having done a rectal exam first and knowing what's happening. You're not trying to push a balloon in past stenosis or scar tissue. You know what you're dealing with and yeah, I, I just think we need to be very careful. Yeah. So when do you decide that what you have tried and done isn't working and you send them back? Like um, you're not seeing them for 12 months and there's no change oh, and you keep trying. No. Look, it would be unusual for me to see anyone more than five times yeah. in total, I think. Yeah. And that's both public and private. Yeah. And then so if you send them back to Chris um, and they, you know, at, at that point, is that failing conservative management or are there other things conservatively, Chris, that you look at doing or that, do you then do further investigation? No, there's other conservative measures. So, um, uh, I mean, I, I feel that um, uh, if I send someone to a pelvic floor physiotherapist with defecatory difficulties, the person who's most likely to benefit is the patient who has just frankly dyssynergic defecation. So you examine them, as Alison said, you can even examine them without uh, a digital internal examination. You can just examine them externally, look at their perineum while they're simulating going to the toilet and um, they clench their, their anus um, elevates their buttocks actively contract, they strain like anything in terms of their abdominal effort, create a huge amount of pressure, and you can clearly see that the patient's um, defecatory technique and coordination of muscles is totally out of kilter. That patient is, is um, I'm highly confident that patient is gonna get better with biofeedback therapy with, mm. with a pelvic floor physiotherapist. Um, uh, the patient who who has sustained obstetric trauma and really has prolapsed, that patient who has um, who has a degree of defecatory dysfunction, a degree of anal leakage, a degree of stress urinary incontinence, nocturia, perhaps incomplete bladder evacuation, maybe a bit of vaginal prolapse. That that's what we see every day, isn't it? That's one of that that is the common patient. Um, those patients, you know, it's all about trying to optimize their technique, optimize their stool consistency, but you may not, you may, are you going to be able to make them happy? Ultimately, the, the, the best barometer of success is what the patient's telling you because you're just trying to make the patient's quality of life as good as you can. So the patient comes back to me, they've had physiotherapy and, and they say, look, I'm a little bit better or I'm no better or um, what other options are there? 
So again, you're, you're going to revisit, um, is there still consistency as good as we get? So for someone with pure obstructed defecation or constipation, you're going to really want to max out on laxative therapy. If they're not getting loose stools, perhaps, um, then there's probably room to move. So you're going to try to, you're going to, you're going to um, uh, perhaps try a different fibre supplement. Uh, might move from an insoluble to a soluble fibre supplement and see if that works. You're going to, you're going to um, try different laxative regimes. And then um, the other thing to, to have a low threshold for is to try suppositories or enemas. You know, do you do you find that an enema helps? Patients with dyscynergic defecation usually will say an enema doesn't do anything. Um, patients who tend to be more a prolapse patient may find that an enema helps. And for, so for some patients, they may find an enema helps, but it's just not enough. They're not able to empty a bit further up. And, and as we know, many of these patients who with long-standing defecatory dysfunction, they end up with rectal hyposensitivity and a degree of megarectum and maybe even megacolon. When you colonoscope these patients, you'll often find they've got a bit of a redundant colon. Often can be a difficult colonoscopy because their colon um, their colon becomes chronically chronically distended. And so you might want to offer that patient retrograde irrigation. Um, we use peristine most commonly in our unit. And so this is essentially a, a medically prescribed colonic irrigation that a patient is able to use every day or every couple of days if they want, or, or maybe even once a week. Um, they may want to try some bowel prep, maybe a 500 mil or a liter of glycoprep if that gets them going, say every week as a, as a management strategy. Um, other, other conservative therapies would include procalipride, which is um, a novel 5-HT4 agonist, so it's essentially a drug which works directly on the colon and it's quite expensive and it's they sometimes can have an exacerbation of their abdominal cramps or nausea, but in sometimes we get a win with precalibride. Patients say it works and um, and if it works then, then keep doing it. Um, uh, from there, if, if we're still not getting anywhere Anorectal physiology really can be useful to to evaluate the dyssynergia. To be honest, that's usually evident clinically just with a, a simple rectal examination. Um, it can be useful to evaluate for rectal hyposensitivity, which really is just, a, a, I guess, signifies chronicity. Um, you're going to probably be less likely to have successful surgery in patients who, who have altered rectal sensation. Um, so I'd be less inclined to offer surgery for those patients. Um, the rectoanal inhibitory reflex um, can be useful because um, if it's present, it means the patient is very unlikely to have Hirschsprung's disease if that's what you're worried about. Um, and so the anorectal physiology might just give me a clue as to whether whether further physiotherapy may help or not. And then really it's... Um, it's it's what are these what are the surgical uh, is there is there some surgery that I can offer the patient where there is realistically a reasonable chance of, of improvement in symptoms and and the two main things you're going to look for are um, symptomatic rectocele and, and and colorectal surgery um, the the most the, the most obvious um, uh, factor or risk factor for success for rectocele repair is vaginal digitation so the patient who says I vaginally digitate? If they don't vaginally digitate, they're much less likely to have a, have significant improvement with um, rectocele repair. And is that and you doing that, or is that the gynecologist doing the repair? If they've come to see you for constipation, who's doing the repair? 
Yeah, so that's with that's with me doing a okay. repair. So yep. if the patient, um, if the patient is complaining predominantly of anorectal symptoms and yep. vaginal agitation, then I'll generally I'll be happy to yep. do a um, a perianal delorms for that patient and and predict probably a reasonably good result. If they're mainly complaining that look, it's just a bulge in my vagina, I'll usually refer that patient to a gynaecologist uh, for a, a, a transvaginal repair. And then really we're looking to see if the degree of biomechanical disruption is such that the patient has developed high-grade rectal intersusception. So the full thickness of their rectum intersuscepts down into their anal canal. And these patients usually will have a degree of fecal leakage. If they don't have a degree of fecal leakage, they probably don't have high-grade rectal intersusception. If they have high-grade rectal intersusception, that just means that they've had a significant disturbance to the support the supportive ligaments and tissues around their around their rectum, and it is predictive that they may be likely to have um, improvement in their symptoms with a um, with a rectopexy operation. Currently, the most um, the most commonly performed operation in Australia would be a ventral mesh rectopexy, and um, uh, that can be performed using different kinds of mesh, biological or synthetic mesh, um, but. It is, it, it's been well documented with level one evidence that these patients have a predictably um, satisfactory improvement in obstructive defecation and in fecal incontinence in the rightly in the, in the correctly selected patient. And so, um, really, it's about trying to identify someone who who is likely to benefit from surgical intervention, who is exhausted or conservative therapy, who feels their symptoms justify surgery, who accepts the risks of surgery, including the risk that they may not improve or a very small chance they may get worse if they suffer from a complication from the surgery. And um, that's how I usually frame the, the discussion um, for my patients. The other things that we can do that, that can occasionally help if someone has severe dyssynergic defecation would, is a Botox injection. Mm-hmm. And certainly I've had, um, in, in some patients, a great great success with, with Botox. Um, and so, and, and often I use that, use that in, in, in line with physiotherapy and biofeedback treatment. Um, uh, there are some patients who really are at the end of the line with severe symptoms and, and daily pain and, and going to the toilet is ruining their lives. Um, and I sort of term this end-stage defecatory dysfunction. These patients usually have a mega rectum, a mega colon. No matter what you try, they're just unable to effectively evacuate and it, and it causes major suffering, major impairment in their quality of life. And occasionally we need to look at more drastic options like anti-grade enemas, uh, where we um, um, usually use the appendix, um, as is often done in the paediatric population, to irrigate from above or potentially even a colostomy. And mm. A colostomy in this group of patients, you know, we often, people often talk about it as being an end-of-the-line therapy. I, I don't think it's really an end-of-the-line therapy. I just think it's an alternative option. And uh, for some patients, it can alleviate a huge amount of suffering. Um, They don't need to go to the toilet at all anymore. Um, It's no longer a problem, but they just have to manage the colostomy. And for patients who've suffered for years or decades with defecatory dysfunction, that's often, that can be a great relief. And, you know, it's only a small percentage of patients who who reach that point. But um, uh, it's important to, to give them all the options, and that includes a colostomy. What about sacral neuromodulation for constipation, Chris? Is that um, yeah. something that is used? Yeah. So look, the um, the group in Sydney, David Lebowski's group, have um, published on um, 
a very carefully carefully um, um, framed study, really looking at patients with um, with genuine obstructed defecation, um, and um, uh, sorry, looking at patients with slow transit constipation where no no defecatory disorder was able to be identified on anorectal physiology or defecating proctography. And they found overall that there was no significant improvement with sacral nerve stimulation, uh, which has really put a dampener on the use of SNS in constipation. Um, SNS certainly is much more effective in fecal incontinence. I have to say, you occasionally, uh, I might have one or two patients where all options have been exhausted and we've used sacral nerve stimulation with some improvement in constipation. But overall, the, the literature says that um, that in, in this group of patients, there there is not significant improvement with sacral nerve stimulation. The the other option surgically is is colectomy for for constipation, and there there, there is a, a very small group of patients again carefully selected who who do benefit from um, from colectomy for constipation. Your ideal patient is someone who who on the face of it really genuinely seems not to have an evacuatory disorder. Um, but on transit studies has isolated slow transit within the colon, usually complaining predominantly of infrequent bowel motions, bloating, abdominal pain. And um, and um, in the in a carefully selected patient, carefully counseled, um, there can be um, some improvement in symptoms with colectomy. So there is a role, there is a role for that as well. So is that usually a total colectomy or is it segments? The standard operation in that situation would be a total colectomy and ileorectal anastomosis, but it is very important to ensure that your patient does not have um, a pelvic floor or evacuatory disorder, um, because uh, I certainly have seen examples of patients who really probably had an evacuatory disorder, had a colectomy and didn't have such a good outcome. So I think it's got to be someone carefully selected. Um, we've been running the pelvic floor service at QE2 now for four years and we actually haven't done any total colectomies for slow transit yet. Um, there are two or three patients that we, who may benefit but um, um, the remainder of the patients we've been able to sort of improve with other measures so um, I think it's a very small subset um, that group. We do use um, interferential therapy for that the small group of patients who who do have true slow transit constipation, and I have seen that work, and it either works well or doesn't work at all. Mm. So it's, yep. it's but it it's no use on the um, outlet obstruction patients. The advantage of sacral nerve stimulation is that it's it's pretty low risk, and um, number one, and number two, you get to have a trial. So. Um, uh, I, I, I think there's not usually much to lose by offering a patient a trial of sacral nerve stimulation. Um, but as I say, the evidence would suggest, the Australian evidence would suggest that in slow transit it's not particularly helpful and, and we can't ignore that. Um, Alison, is there anything else that you wanted to add? Um, like I said, you're going to be doing some separate podcasts on balloon and we can even get into the perineal descent on another episode as well. Oh, let Chris comment on that. <laughs> like, with perineal descent, like, you know, descending perineum syndrome, like those are really the patients that we often don't get the results that we are looking for with. Mm. 
and and they're the ones I'd love for Chris to <laughs> fix. But um, yeah. Yeah, I think I think perineum, descending perineum syndrome. We talk about like it's a sort of its own entity, and and um, we talk about these rectocele, internal rectal prolapse, intracele, descending perineum syndrome, like they're an isolated um, problem. Where I think really descending perineum syndrome, um, where the perineum descends more than three centimeters during straining, is simply a marker of the. Um, of the uh, stretching or tearing of tissues that um, normally prevent perineal descent. And so normally when someone strains, the perineum uh, descends up to three centimeters because there are there is um, tight connective tissue and ligaments within the pelvis which are holding everything inside. And if there's been significant uh, trauma within the pelvis or surgery or, or, or stretching from chronic straining, then, um, then uh, the perineum may be able to descend um, a rectal seal may occur. Um, eventually, the rectum may start into susceptible. Um, these are things that we can measure, but some patients have defecatory dysfunction without any of these abnormalities simply because they have disruption but not causing one of these named anatomical abnormalities. Um, so for me, uh, per descending perineum syndrome just means a patient who has sustained significant um, loss of support within their pelvis and I adopt the same approach. Um, am I able to identify an anatomical abnormality that I feel confident that I can improve with some surgical operation? Important to say that none of these operations are anatomical. Um, so um, we weren't designed to have some, some a firm piece of mesh in our rectovaginal septum. In fact, our rectovaginal septum was designed to be elastic and that elasticity is important for function both sexual function, vaginal function, as well as anorectal function. We weren't designed to have a ligament uh, joining our distal rectum to our sacral promontory. We never had that ligament. We create that surgically. It's non-anatomical. Until we're able to more, more accurately understand the anatomical disturbance that occurs in these patients and perform a more anatomical repair, uh, we're, we're going to be stuck where we are. There's only a sort of a number of operations that we do surgically, but um, um, I think we're limited by the fact that our operations are non-anatomical and, and therefore our, our, our results are, are not perfect. One other um, just comment that I had written down was that just to remind people that when a patient goes to see a colorectal surgeon, they're generally completely expecting to have a rectal exam. They might not have that same expectation when they come to see a physiotherapist. So I think that having that discussion about consent before you do an examination is very important. And I always explain what is going to happen, why I want to see these things. And I usually am very consistent with my wording. And I say, so I formally ask, do you consent to a rectal exam today? Um, and um, yeah, so we've we've gone through all the questions. I usually say to them, you know, I'm going to want to do a rectal exam today, and they might go, oh no. And I say, okay, we're going to have a bit of a chat, but I'll just let you think about that while we're chatting about this other thing. And then I'll go through, explain what we're going to do, and ask the question, and and let them know that it's okay to say no. And they might say. I look next time. I like to work up to these things. Just go, yeah, fine. That's, you know. But I think it's really important to to have that um, consent discussion because their expectation 
is not the same walking in to see us. Mm. Yep, that's a really good point. Um, I We will leave it there because everybody needs to go to sleep I'm awake now I probably won't be going back to sleep (laughs) Um, but thank you both so much for your time and again I think that conference sounds absolutely fantastic so if anybody can get to Brisbane um, come down for it is this going to be a yearly thing I know you haven't done it yet but hey (laughs) I don't know if it'll be yearly but it will be a regular event Um, so we'll we'll see how how it goes hope um, as many can people can make it as possible and always in Brisbane no, we might. So that's oh. the thing. We might make it an annual thing, but at a different location. Um, oh, nice. Uh, but we'll see how it goes. Certainly, we'll have it back in Brisbane again sometime if, if, if it goes well. If you can't make it to the conference, can you still go out to the function? <laughs> no. Oh, <laughs> damn. God. You want to be my plus one, Laurie. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can be plus one. That's fine. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much again. Um, I will talk to you guys soon. Thank you, Laurie. Okay, see ya. Bye.